We are doing the, uh, as you can see up here behind me on the wall, we are doing Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism. This is a curriculum put on by Hartman. I mean, it has several different components. The component we're in is called peoplehood. So it's kind of where you start. So I guess talking about what does it mean to be part of the Jewish people? What is this crazy thing called a Jewish identity? What are the ways that that's simple? What's, well, probably there, that means zero ways that it's simple. Um, but like, what are the ways that it's complicated? Um, and, uh, and where are we going? Um, wh where are we as a community, as a KI community? So I'm really happy to have so many of us here um, ready to talk about it because I think it's going to be one of the most important topics for uh, liberal Judaism and liberal Jewish communities uh, for the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and then it'll happen again um, for the next you know, uh, generation of folks after that. But we are at a critical juncture. Uh, and if you talk to any Jewish professional, they will tell you this. Any Jewish professional will tell you that they are up at night worrying about some of the big questions about Jewish identity, Jewish community, uh, what the future is for Jewish identity. Uh, and so we're going to look um, at where all of that conversation starts. We sent to you uh, at home the texts if you signed up for this class. If you didn't register for the class, we couldn't know to send it to you. Um, if you registered, you got it sent to you. It's in the chat. The link is in the chat. So at home, if you would like to look at the sources, just click on the chat. That opens a separate tab. And then you can just click on that tab at the top of your browser, and it will open those sources for you. And you can come back to us on Zoom if you can figure that out, because that took me about two and a half years to figure out how to do that. So <laughs> um, those of you who are here have a printed copy uh, of the text that we're going to be looking at. So what I love is, folks, I asked last time, who wants text sent to them before you come to class? And a lot of hands went up, right? And then I'm like, okay, great. We're going to uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So we um, we sent you the text, but like, ha, 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 what we didn't send you is any explanation about what the heck they mean. So if you read them, I'm sure you went, okay, that was so helpful that she sent these texts. We have absolutely no clue about what it, what this means. What we're talking about are two kinds of Jewish identity, two ways of really identifying with Judaism, particularly in liberal Judaism, but it also happens in the uh in the Orthodox world. There are two ways that we talk about this right now as Jewish professionals, and it's it's not, didn't start now, like it's from uh, 20th century philosophy, uh, some 19th century philosophy. Um, out of those philosophies, we've distilled two terms, two ways to talk about being Jewish. One is a Judaism of being. The other is a Judaism of becoming. So this is the way... Uh, people are talking about this right now when we talk about uh, Jewish identity in terms of what makes someone feel they're Jewish and what makes them feel like they belong to a Jewish community. Is it a, is it a Judaism of being or a Judaism of belonging? And so you're just going, okay, now she's going to unpack those. No, we're going to look one at a time at those. And where are we always going to start our conversation? Where are we always going to start looking at text? Torah, right? Um, so it should be no surprise that what we're going to go to for your first source um, is a Torah text. And we're going to look at the foundational text about the Judaism of being. This text is also the text that introduces the Jewish people, uh, the very beginnings of the Jewish people, and they're not the Jewish people yet, right? Okay. So uh, look at your text where it says uh, source number one. At home, you can click in the chat. 
click that tab that opens in your browser and you can see the texts. I will read them so you don't have to worry about it and um, you'll find them later. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 12, starting with uh, verse 1. I would have one of you read, but with, with all this Zoom stuff, it gets very complicated. So I'm just going to read. Vayomar denial Avram lech lecha me'artzecha umimoldatecha umibet avicha el ha'eretz asher arecha. God says to Avraham, go forth from your native land and from your ancestor's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse the one that curses you. And all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. Avram went forth as God had commanded, and Lot went with him. Avram was 75 years old when he went on this adventure, people. 75 years old. I'm tired and I'm 57. So, like, I'm just, I read Avram and Sarai with, like, a new respect all the time. Avram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the wealth that they had amassed and the persons that they had acquired in Haran and they sent out for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in the land of Canaan, Avram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem at the Terebinth of Moreh. The Canaanites were then in the land and God appeared to Avram and said, I will assign this land to your offspring. And he built an altar there to Adonai who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And he built there an altar to Adonai and invoked God by name. Then Avram journeyed by stages toward the Negev. This is the beginning, obviously, of uh, this whole business of the Jewish people. Why... Given this, if you look at this text, okay, this is the person who's going to be the progeny of the Jewish people. This is going to be the person, because we've read the book, we know how it ends. This is going to be the person who founds, right, the the, peop, the family that's going to found the people that's going to be the people of Israel, the ones chosen, right, for a covenantal relationship, da 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 Why Avram, according to Genesis? Stephen Lewis, Lewis Mr. Master Communicator. No, you got nothing? Yeah. Was the most humble? Does it, where does that say that? Pam, where does it say that? Right. The reason you can't find it is because it's not there. Trick teacher question. It says absolutely nothing about why Avram. Nothing. So on some level you could say, okay, this is that's kind of random. So we have a random God. On the other hand, you could say this is actually what? This is actually a love story. Go explain why you fell in love with the one you fell in love with. All right, maybe some of you can. But really, that's reasoning after the fact. Or you've been to a lot of good therapists who have helped you unpack why it is you might have been attracted to the person you're attracted to. Right, Flakanoff? So you might have been to a really good therapist who helped you unpack it, but really, really love go figure this is this is the story of god and avram so what we get with avram is that he has to what does avram have to do he does have to do something because there's being and becoming becoming implies doing so what does avram have to do he does have to do something 
He has to what? He has to leave. He has to go. Leave home. He has to pick up and leave everything familiar. Leave home. Right. Robin is saying, you know, he has to leave home. Right. Step number one, leave home. You have to have what it takes to get up and do that. Right. That is not easy. 75 years old. He gets up and leaves home. Leaves not just home, leaves everything familiar and Torah listed in order. You know, your ancestor's house, the land of your birth. So you're leaving your language, your culture, everything, your civilization, everything. So he does have to do something. But what do Abraham's children have to do to be read into this equation? Nothing. Get born. That's right, Faye. That's what they have to do. Get born. Get born to Avram. And then it's iffy for a while about who the mom's going to be, right? Because it's supposed to be Sarai, but it isn't. It's Hagar, right? But then Sarai disavows Ishmael and elects uh, Yitzchak to replace Ishmael as her heir. Uh, and so um, so it becomes actually uh, uh, Yitzchak. So, but the children don't have to do anything. They just have to get born to this family and they become a part of this business between Avram and Sarai and God. That's according to Genesis. That's our foundation understanding of how this whole business gets started. Avram and Sarai go. They have to actually do something, but not their children. Their children get born into this relationship. They get born into this situation. Okay. Um, so... Avram, do we get an idea from Avram that he leaves because he has like some idea that God has told him he needs to go out and found and and represent in the world? No. The answer is no. No ideology. None. Does it say you will now preach that? You will now know that I am and therefore you will say that? No. It's not here. It is simply about being Avram, being elected by God to follow God to where God says uh, they need to go. Um, and there's nothing that anyone has to do then to be part of this uh, business of the, the origins of the Jewish people. So really, it's about birth. It's about being born into the family. This is the Judaism of being par excellence. This is this is. The paradigmatic example, this is where it all begins. This remains really a foundational understanding of what it means to be Jewish. You're born into the Jewish people. Therefore, people who become Jewish, what's the ritual to become Jewish? For men, it's circumcision, right? And what? Mikvah. What is it for women? Mikvah. Why mikvah? Everyone's mumbling. Cleans away everything, cleans away mostly your past birth. Mikvah is being born again. That was ours. So mikvah is that you are born again. You are born into the Jewish people when you go through mikvah. We shy away from this language because of fundamentalist Christianity. But if we didn't have to shy away from it, and you really want to embrace the Judaism of being, it's a beautiful metaphor. It's a beautiful ritual. It's a beautiful ceremony. It is deeply moving. Um, I am very pleased that my parents took me to mikvah because I was born not Jewish. 
I'm very pleased that I went through mikvah. It's not rational. It's not reasonable. If I were moving to Israel and I needed the paperwork, it would be rational and reasonable. But I'm not. God knows. Like, I've had enough problems here. But, um, but it's, it's a deeply moving thing for me that I was a part of a ritual that had me birthed into the Jewish people. That is a Judaism of being. You just belong to the Jewish people because you're born into it. Whether you like that or not, doesn't matter. Um, and then when you convert, you agree to go through the birth waters again to be born into, to be adopted by the Jewish people. Okay? And we're all familiar with this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I want to really ground us in the texts, the origins, like the, the ideas around uh, a Judaism of being. Um, and so what, what I find ironic is, therefore, people who choose to become Jewish and go through the ritual of mikvah for the purposes of conversion are born again. So Jews who were Jews of becoming become Jews of being. That was like, whoa. Right? When I, when I realized that, I was like, whoa, right? So that's profound. So what did the rabbi set up? The rabbi set up a system whereby there's no discrepancy for them. Jews who were born Jewish were born Jewish. Jews who came to it some other way are born Jewish too in the mikvah. Like, whoa. When I realized that Jews who became Jewish, meaning they were Jews of becoming, in converting become Jews of being, it's like, whoa. And I remember being told in class all the time, people who convert to Judaism, and remember I was raised in a traditional Jewish institution my whole life, they said to us, you can't undo it. That's why we're so careful about who we convert. Because it cannot be undone. Once you convert, you are born it through those waters to the Jewish people. You are at Sinai. You can't undo that. You're stuck. So Jews who become Jewish become Jews of being, not Jews of becoming. Okay? That's brilliant, Matt. There's also nothing in the text anyway. So what's the theory of why Abraham thought, oh, that's the voice of God, not just something or multiple gods or the God or not just something in my head, because if you can accept that that's the voice of God, then everything else that flows from it, you can kind of understand why, well, maybe I'll take the advice. So that is a whole different class, but thank you for bringing up the topic. Um, but what I will say, uh, Matt, is that what we tend to focus on in the in this kind of a discussion is the authors, right? We we do try to get into the heads and the minds of the characters, obviously, because we wanted to get into the story. And here we're getting into the mind of the character God. We're less concerned about Avram, right? For this for the point of this discussion, he heard voices. I mean, you know, like believe me, a lot of us when we come to talking about the binding of Isaac have this very active conversation into our study. Right? Or at the high holidays when people preach on it or whatever, like, wait a minute, he heard a voice, an invisible voice that no one else heard, say, right? So sacrifice your son. You're only, so it is a profound conversation to have. Right now, what we're focused on is the folks who created these stories, who created the narratives about the founding of the Jewish people. Why write it this way, right? Like, what is their agenda? 
for our purposes, we want to understand the different ways one understands how you are Jewish. Okay? So it's not an uninteresting question what you ask, but we don't have that long. Okay. So, so think about for a second, just take a second, all y'all at home, all y'all here, take a second to think about what groups other than Judaism are you born into? What other identities, what other groups are you a member of just because you got born into it? Hmm? Your sex. Okay. Your Nationality. Sex. Your personality. Nationality. Nationality. So sex is a group. Personality, if someone decides to make categories, I guess that's a group. Race. Race. Also a construct. Also something someone decides is a group, right? You know, but that's, a, again, another class. That's a whole other discussion. Um, what else? Your what? Your family. You get born into your family. Uh, for me, I really think a lot about nationality, especially these days. And, and my father was a veteran. Um, you know, I think a lot of, I was always talked to as we were so lucky to be American, to be born American. My grandparents were both uh, here, like born American and like how lucky we were. So, um, so I have a lot of awareness of how lucky I am to have been born American. Okay. Okay. For some people, the socioeconomic status you're born into is kind of who you stay. For many people, it is not. Right. So I'm kind of thinking about like what you're born into that kind of stays with you. Right. Um, the, so yes, the for some, for sure. The, the language you speak or that you hear in your household. Okay. Uh, so the, the language or the group of languages that you hear in your home, mm-hmm. you're, you belong to a certain group based on that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then, then we have to start thinking about when you belong to a group, what do you do when you don't have shared ideology? Right? So any group you're born into that you belong to because you're born into it, not because you choose it, you're born into it, what do you do when there is conflict around ideology? You leave it. Very quickly from home, there was an answer, you leave it. Okay, I as an American may have deep conflicts with, let's say, a few years ago, the administration I might have been living under at the time, leave it is not such an easy answer. That is not an easy answer. Leave it. I'm not saying it's not an answer, but that is not an easy answer. Where was I going to go? You can Who protest. Who would help me? You Who can would protest. help my family? Mm-hmm. What? You can protest and you can Okay, try. wait, wait. Stop, stop, stop. Okay, hey, hang on one sec. Hang on one sec. Leave. We're talking and about we'll- leaving. Leaving is often not an option. And if you do leave, what is the cost? It's heavy. Very heavy. What are the consequences of leaving? Right? So that, and that pertains exactly to this conversation about being Jewish. What happens when your ideology really clashes with the group you're born into? And one of the options is, okay, leave. Well, certainly nationality, I can't so easily. My race, I certainly can't. My native tongue, I certainly can't. Um, Avraham had to leave all the people who spoke his language, right, and go to a place where some, they spoke another language. But a lot of the things, my sex, I can now change. Is it so easy to leave it? No. 
family of origin. We said we were born into a group called the family. Leave but, your family. But your religion you can't change. Your religion, if you're not Jewish, you can change it. Let's be very clear, Judith. Thank you for the point. If you're not Jewish, you can change your religion. If you're Jewish, you cannot. Right. You can change what you practice, and then you're called an apostate. You have, you know, gone over, but you're still Jewish. You see the, the crazy and the brilliance of this peoplehood business? You can practice Catholicism all the day long, and guess what? You're still Jewish. You can convert from Buddhism to Judaism and then become Muslim. And guess what? You're still Jewish. Who has a religion like that? That you can't convert out of a religion that's based in peoplehood. That's based in Judaism of being. And once you go through those waters... You are a Jew of being, and there's no getting out. You can leave, but if I leave, and many of you know my story, I did. I left my family. I was not in contact with my mother the last seven years of her life. Was that easy? It was the hardest thing I have ever done to protect myself and my daughter, ever. And did I ever really leave? How do you leave a family of origin. How do you leave the family you're born into? You can leave, but you can never leave. You carry it with you everywhere you go, every single day, every relationship, every time you risk, every time you trust, every time you build a new relationship, every time you lay in bed perseverating about past relationships, it, it stays with you and you work on it and you work on it and you work on it and you get really good professionals to work with you and be your team. But you're working on it all the time. The same way we create families, we create marriages. We create marriages that then become a nuclear family to children. What happens when ideology clashes there? We divorce. Do you just leave? I mean, yeah, you leave. But, but right? But it's, it's just, it's very complicated. An identity of being what it means when you have a very serious clash with the real ideology, the philosophy, the lived practice of that group. It's very difficult to leave, and it's often impossible to stay. That's what we're dealing with when we deal with being a member of the Jewish people. Glad you all could come for this uplifting conversation that we're having tonight. You're stuck. Stephen Lewis. Are you saying it's impossible to leave? Or just difficult to leave? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, right? So I guess part of it depends on what we mean by leave. You can get out. You can never go back. You can say, I'm never going back. and never go back. That's leaving in one sense. In another sense, do we ever really leave the family of origin we come from? Right? Like, even if I never talk to them again... Can't change history. I, I, I can't change, and I can't change what I belong to that I now have quit. But I, it's still my mother. Even if I don't talk to her, she's still my right. There's still I still have a mother, right? And and so that's why I said yes, you can leave. And then do you really leave? 
I mean, I'll leave it to the therapist to go into much more detail about that. I can only talk from the lived experience. Um, and that is that you can't ever really leave. Certainly. You can leave. You learn to work but with them. You learn to hold them you. differently. You learn a different perspective. If y'all can raise your hand on the screen, that would be super helpful because it puts you to the left corner and I will see the hand raise thing. Um, so that would be super helpful if you can do the hand raise thing. Thank you, Judith. Um, so, um, what was, what was I saying? Um, that, that you could, you never really leave certain aspects, right, of what shapes and forms you that you still have a relationship with, even if the relationship is, I choose not to be there. Right? Like I once had this argument with somebody who came here to synagogue and said, well, I'm really no longer part of the Jewish people. And I said, yes, you are. And it was a young adult, maybe 21, 22. And he said, and his family was from KI. And I, and he said, no, I'm not. I said, yes, you are. And he said, you don't get to decide that for me. And I said, oh, I so get to decide that for you. I get to decide who's a Jew. You can decide never to come home. That's your decision. That does not mean you are not our lost child. That does not mean we won't grieve your absence. That means you're a Jew to us. Well, how can you impose that on me? I said, who chose your name? My parents. Oh, really? So they chose your name. They imposed that on you. They imposed an identity on you. That's what we do to beings that we love who belong to us. We impose an identity on them. They can reject it. They can change it. They can legally have a new name on a new driver's license. And we were talking earlier about all these staff people who get married and change their names. It's like ugh, pain for the rest of us. Like you can change it, whatever. But you, you have an identity. You don't get to tell us you don't belong to us. We make that decision. You get to make the decision never to walk through these doors again. Judith? Yeah. I think we can leave it, but it never leaves us. That's what, yes, that's what we were saying, I think. Joyce? So in defining leaving, there's physical and psychological. And really what you're saying is you might leave physically, but it will never leave you and you will never leave it psychologically. Right. So it's the therapist, right, jumps right on those distinctions. Um, and I think maybe on some levels psychologically, you know, we move on and whatever. But, yeah, on some levels, it's, you know, it's a part of our identity. It's a part of, of, of who we are. Jeff? I brought up a conversation once before, and it, Reminds me, and I mentioned that I lived in New Mexico once next to the Taos Pueblo and hung out with the Indians. And it's a very, what I think I'm proud of with Judaism is, is my tribal dedication, the tribes of Israel, our backgrounds. And those roots are so deep. I mean, you can take a plant out of the soil, but the roots got to come with it if it's going to survive. And our okay. roots will stay with us, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. Thanks, Jeff. All right, let's look at source number two. Oh, sorry, go ahead. All right, uh, sorry, we got to have a microphone for you so that folks at home can hear you. There's another strategy when you're at odds with your group, which the Jews have had to use, which is assimilating, which is kind of leaving without leaving. What, assimilating, what do you mean? So, uh, well, I was thinking, you know, like back in the 14th century when in the in Spain when they had to be pretend to become Christian or, or Moorish or during Germany when they had to pretend to become Gentiles or when they came to America and wanted to assimilate and be real Americans. 
So that's also sort of leaving your identity, but not quite. So I wonder, though, if assimilation is a way to accommodate pretending to leave. Yeah, right? That's a very interesting category. What does it mean when you're not really trying to leave, but you need to pretend to leave, so you have to act all the time as if you've left? And the problem for the Jews that you just put your finger on is that too often pretended assimilation became actual true disaffiliation from the Jewish people. It's a tragedy that's the other side of the incredible blessing of the Enlightenment and modernity for the Jewish people that, that you've identified. And what if we drill down all the way to what we've been talking about, it's also very complicated. Jews who come, people who come to me who are not Jewish, and they find, they find they have two Jewish grandparents, which means their parent was born to Jewish parents who assimilated completely. They weren't raised as Jews. And then they find out they had two Jewish parents on one side. And they're like, I'm, I'm half Jewish. Like, what does that for a, if we take a Judaism of being seriously, what does that mean? And they hear it. They hear you're born Jewish, you're born Jewish, you're born Jewish, you're born to Jewish parents. When they find out they have a Jewish parent, they're like, well, what does that mean for me? Right? And it makes this discussion very complicated of identity. Right? Okay. Let's look at text number two. So this is uh, the 20th century uh, theologian Michael Wishagrad from a work called The Body of Faith that Hartman's bringing forward to kind of discuss in a more modern context. We jumped from three, two, whatever thousand years ago to the 1983. Um, all right. The foundation of Judaism is the family identity of the Jewish people as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll add Sarah, Becca, Rachel, and Leah. Whatever else is added to this must be seen as growing out of and related to the basic identity of the Jewish people as the seed of Abraham elected by God through descent from Abraham and Sarai. This is the crux of the mystery of Israel's election, which is funny because it sounds very Christian to me, right? That language sounds very Christian to me. Seen through the eyes of this is clearly very dated, seen through the eyes of man, a divine election of a group defined by some ideological criterion would be far more plausible. It would have been far more understandable that God had elected all those who feed the hungry and clothe the naked, or if our sensibilities are more contemplative than active, all those who have grasped the absolute or who have achieved nirvana. These are accomplishments of individuals and reflect unusual endowment or effort or both. But being born into a particular family is hardly an achievement for which anyone deserves either credit or blame. God chose the root of election and of the election of a biological instead of ideological people because this was God's free choice. Rarely has any theology come to grips with the contingency that follows from God's freedom. It would have made a lot more sense. Choose the strongest group in the region, given that it's a rough region and a rough time in human history. 
Choose the most compassionate, kind, and wise people and have them follow and become the group that is the elect group. To have an understanding of a God who freely chooses a biological basis for belonging is a little crazy. So I think what Wishengrad is pointing at is, what does that say about our understanding of God? We say God wants us to, and we're going to follow up with that, what God wants us to. That's not our story of how it starts, and that's not the story of who God chooses. God chooses a family, and then whoever's born to that family becomes this elect group that has God's special blessing bestowed upon it. Let's go. Everybody okay? Bert? This sounds very disturbing to me. <laughs> Which particularly part? Because, particularly because of the charge of anti-Semites mm-hmm. about Jews. Mm-hmm. And what? And wait, the, what is the, the charge whole, the whole, before the, we assume everybody knows what that means? What, what's the charge you're talking about? Well, the about? charge is that somehow racially we are superior to other people because we were, quote, chosen by God. And uh, that is used often against us and kind of goes against everybody is descended from Adam. Okay, I want you to unpack that last stuff. This goes against the idea that everyone's descended from Adam. You tell me how it does and how it doesn't. Okay. What what I meant was the idea that we are all all one human family. Which we are. Which we are. And that somehow... God decided there was a subfamily of that that was going to be very special. How is that not chosenness? It is, is chosenness. That, that is the basis of our understanding. But isn't that what Reconstructionism okay, rejects? Okay, we're not talking about Reconstructionism. We, no, we no, can no, go there if you want. We're looking at the two kinds of Jewish identity, being and becoming. The classic Jewish understanding is a Judaism of being, and then we'll talk about a Judaism of becoming. Then you can weigh in on what you think Reconstructionism has to say about that discussion, right, between those two, right? Yeah? All right. So I'm going to say a classical Jewish understanding of a Judaism of being does not go against the idea that we are one human family. Why and how can I prove that? Because there is the covenant between Noah and Noah's children, humanity, and God. There is a covenant in place between, from Torah between God and the children of Noah. So that's in place. Yes, but do you have a favorite child? Everyone does. No one likes to admit it. Right. This, and, but we're going to look at the Jewish of becoming texts that say, you're my elected people, my special people, if. If. Oh, I understand that. But right. So, and so we're gonna we're gonna now this is look at the like conversation. To eugenics. Huh? The, this is getting to like eugenics with the Nazis charge. Okay. So so wait. So wait. Biologically different from everybody else. Okay. So this, because it's been used against us, does not make it something that has not been informative for us about identity. So someone could say because you were born into whatever, pick pick a genetic marker. You are less than or you are better than, and therefore we hate you. You can do that with any race. You can do that with any right biological basis for anything. Because the Nazis used it against us doesn't mean it wasn't a very powerful understanding for us about what it meant to be part of the Jewish people, how you got there, 
can't leave it, right? And then we have certain privileges and obligations that go along with that belonging. All right, I think Marty wants to say something, if you would bring the microphone. But, but Christians broke away from the Jewish sect and are therefore also the children of Abraham because biologically they're the children of Abraham. They were descendants of children of Abraham. Whether they were Christian or whatever religion they went into, Judaism would argue they are not. So they're all Jews. They are not the children of Abraham. But a Jew, yes, pagans who became Christian were not the descendants of Abraham. Most of the Christian world were converted pagans. They were not the children of Israel. These they were, claim they're descended from Abraham. They are not, says Judaism. Judaism says they were born pagan. They were born Whatever, they converted to Christianity. Christianity wants to read it, itself as the new Israel and, a, and the descendants of Abraham. They are not, according to a Judaism of being, right? And But see how we are so in a Christian culture that we're like, but wait, they're the descendants of Abraham too. And it's like, no, they're not. And we don't want to say that very well. It's like in a, in a, in a Christian country. So we've been taught we're all children of Abraham, not according to a Judaism of being we're not. Only the descendants of Abraham and Sarai are. Only genetically Jewish people are. Not people who join Christianity. Barbara? So I have a memory that you once said in Torah I study. I hate when things start that way. <laughs> no, no, this is, I don't think this will complicate things. You said... It's like a, maybe I'm paraphrasing and I've got this wrong because it was a while ago. Uh -huh. It's like a radio station. Maybe God, the character of God, was broadcasting this uh, invitation to many people. And Avram was the only one who said, this is a little crazy, but okay, I'll do it. Right. <laughs> so there must be some, right? Some yeah, I probably said that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Um so right, so like it's that is a, a classic, uh, especially neo Aristotelian and neo Platonic idea of prophecy or God speaking to someone because neo Platonists and neo Aristotelians could not have a God that changes, so it couldn't be a God who's talking one second and wasn't the second before. So how could God speak? That's a change in God. You can't have a change in perfection. So for a neo-Aristotelian like Maimonides, that's where that comes from. The signal is always going out from the unmoved mover, the unchanged changer. God is perfection, perfecting itself, thought thinking itself all the time. Nothing changes. What changes is the human being, and something changed in Avram that allowed Avram to tune to the station that picked up the signal. But that's where that comes from, is a is a medieval uh, under, need to interpret Torah through the lens of Neo-Aristotelianism and Neoplatonism. But if you, if Avram had the ability to tune in the signal, maybe biologically, the thinking might have been of God. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but maybe it's his descendants so it's kind of like theological Darwinism is what I hear you proposing, right? Like, well, if Abraham was the only one who could turn into the signal, that's the family I'm going with because those genes are clearly ones that can hear me. 
That doesn't sound so good, but yes, that's what I but, but, but it makes sense, right? It makes sense. Like, I mean, I'm an anthropologist. I love Darwin. Like, I, I love the idea that what helps us survive is what carries on and carries forward. Whether it's good or bad is irrelevant. It's what helped us survive in one situation. The question is, does it help us survive now? And I think I just opened my own can of worms that I'm going to leave very quickly. All right. So, um, all right. So if we belong to many different groups, we also have to, as we said, hold what happens when we have real questions and real issues uh, with that group. What we're going to look now at a discussion of the Judaism of belonging. Um, let's look at text three, source number three. Exodus 19, 1 through 6. On the third note, we just read this last week, by the way. We studied it in Torah study. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on the very day they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Having journeyed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. Israel encamped there in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and God called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and declare to the children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Indeed, all the earth is mine. But you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. And then we get, right, the words that God speaks to the children of Israel, which are the Bert Kleinman's favorite, the Ten Commandments, right? And then some stuff after the Ten Commandments, but right, if you will be to be a treasure people then, and we get, I am Adonai, you will shall have no other gods before me, honor thy father and thy mother, do not steal, do not kill, no pulling ponytails, no taking stuff that's not yours, right? No, right, so we get all of these like commandments, which means somehow now something about this situation has changed. Sinai changes the deal. Sinai is now another way of understanding what it means to truly belong to this people. And that means a certain way of behaving, a certain way of living. And that is a Judaism of becoming. It's about the person you choose to become. And if you become a person informed by these values and you live your life that way, then you are a member of the Jewish community and of the Jewish people. Um, that, or not, not just then you as an individual are y'all as a collective are my treasured people. If you live by these values, if you live by these morals, if you live by these ethics, if you live by these laws. So a Judaism of becoming is a collective defined by particular behaviors, values, and beliefs. I'm reading now from uh, right my Hartman's teacher guide. It makes the uniqueness of the Jewish people contingent upon becoming and aspiring to both do and think certain things to meet their destiny. So if we think about those other groups that we belong to, there are some groups we feel like membership and loyalty are not automatic, right? We belong, but it's not automatic. I'm a member of that group, but it's not automatic. It has to be earned. And if it has to be earned, it can be lost, which is very different from you're born a Jew or you go through the mikvah, you're stuck. You're ours forever. 
that for the kid who came to sit in my office had implications that were yucky for him for a while. I'm hoping ultimately he'll see that we were holding him the whole time, no matter how like much he didn't love us back. Right? Like I hope eventually it won't be a yucky message, but a positive one for him. But, but, but that, but, that, but other than those kinds of situations, for the most part, it's like you're safe in terms of belonging to this group. You may hate belonging to this group. You may hate being Jewish, but you're, but you're here. Your, your belonging to the group is not questioned. You, it doesn't matter how you feel about it, but on some level, there is a security and a safety and a knowing who I am that comes with you can't change it. You can leave it, but you can't really change it. It's very different if your belonging to the group is based on behaving, right? Because then it can be lost. Yes? Give me examples that are not Jewish examples. Other groups that are based on how one behaves, the ideology one has, and a way that that can be lost. Bert? If you, I believe if you're Christian and don't believe in Jesus as your savior, you're no longer Christian. Okay, if you're born into Christianity, a certain kind of Christianity, and that's how you're raised, but you grow up to be someone who doesn't believe that Jesus died for your sins or that Jesus is your savior or that Jesus is the son of God, I don't believe that, and I'm therefore I'm not going to behave in the ways right that would be in line with that belief. I'm out. I'm out of the group. I'm yeah. not Christian anymore. I think it's the same thing with Islam. If you don't accept Allah as your God, you can't, okay. So, you can't be a Muslim. So you're giving us okay. So but religious examples atheist. of you no longer belong to that religion if you no longer hold to the tenets and beliefs of that religion. Okay. But you can totally be a Jewish atheist. You can 100% be a Jewish atheist. And we have many. Because your atheism doesn't matter to the Judaism of being. All right. So other other groups. Give me other examples. Uh, other than religion. Political parties. Now we're getting into the meat of it. Political parties. I am a staunch fill-in-the-blank. Unless and until either the candidate of choice, right, or, you know, the body decides that they're going to be behind a certain kind of legislation, right? You're, then it's like I have to start questioning, am I? And some people will do the questioning for you. How much have we heard, what, what is it called when you're a fake Republican again? Rhino. A rhino. You're a rhino. It's not the, the person didn't disavow being a Republican. Who disavowed them as Republican. Other Republicans who said you're not behaving, believing, acting like a Republican. They're, what we decide a Republican is. Therefore, you're not a Republican. You're a rhino. I love that. Right. So there, there are like groups that are about ideology, about norm around behavior, the way we think, right? The decisions that that body makes that there comes a point where either you decide I'm no longer one of them or the group decides for you, you're not one of them anymore. Right. So it's easier to join in some ways because, wow, this totally allies with my beliefs and my values. Well, whatever. I read myself totally into this. That's really easy and great. And it's really easy to lose if those change 
Or the center of the group changes and decides you are now too far outside the margins. You are too outside the lines. You now no longer belong to the group. Yeah? This is the challenge we are facing in liberal Judaism. This is the real challenge we are having uh, in the Jewish world right now. What does it mean to be a community in which individuals are tied together on the basis of biology? If we're talking about a Judaism of being or versus um, belonging uh, on the basis of ideas, beliefs, and values. How does a community identify itself? How does it identify who's in and who's out? Who belongs and who doesn't? Even within a Judaism of being, what's the split? Where's the divide where some people are in or some people are out in the Jewish world? Okay, but what, what's the divide? But in orthodoxy, in Hasidic Judaism, a Judaism of being, biology, what's the breakdown between them and us? Whether your mother or father Thank was Jewish. Thank you. Whether your mother or father was Jewish. Certain parts of the Jewish world do not acknowledge patrilineal descent. If your father was a Jew, but the womb that carried you was not, you are not Jewish. You must convert. That is a Judaism of being that says, here's who's a Jew, the mother has to be Jewish. We in the non-Orthodox Jewish world all accept patrilineal descent. If your father was Jewish and you were raised a Jew, you are a Jew. That's, that's for the Judaism of being. So even within a Judaism of being, there is conflict about who's a Jew and who's not a Jew. Right? For us... The conversation has gone even farther. When you get up the rabbinic level to have to be rabbis who decide halacha, you know, Jewish, really like the, the, the norms and practices for your community as reconstructionist rabbis, we had a whole, oh my God, it was the longest meeting of my life, trying to decide what if neither one of the parents are Jewish, but the egg donor is Jewish. What if the egg donor is not Jewish, but the sperm is Jewish? What if none of the sperm or egg are Jewish, but the the carrier, the surrogate, is Jewish? It was a very long conversation. It was fraught, as you can imagine. Many of us had had children by different technologies, and it was incredibly painful to watch people's reactions, rabbis' reactions, to other people who said, essentially, your child is not Jewish, according to you know how I would parse an understanding of that. The good news is, the decision was, if any one of those things was Jewish, the child is Jewish. Um, and the easy way in is obviously mikvah, right? And, and the child is converted to Judaism. But who is a Jew by Judaism of being? That is evolving all the time, as is an understanding of who are Jews by a Judaism of belonging. Okay, so easy if you're talking about Orthodox and Hasidic. You're a Jew by belonging, yes, but if you eat treif and you don't keep Shabbos and you don't do whatever, are you really Jewish? Yeah, but you're a drag on the Jewish system and the Jewish possibility of a messianic future. So are you really Jewish? Right, Steve? And that's not in the Hartman curriculum, by the way, that's me. That's me. That's all me. 
Is this part of the list of disqualifications that the right wing in Israel is now imposing? Because you have, you didn't mention gay people. I mean, is there is a list, isn't there, of criteria that they're saying these people are not Jewish? No. Yes, but but if we're talking about in America, if you're gay, it doesn't matter. You're still a Jew. You're just sinning a lot, like every day. When you brush your teeth, you're sinning. Right, but didn't they say in in Israel that... So that's a whole other conversation. Who they recognize in Israel is who's a Jew, by what standards, right? What are we talking about? The The law of return? That's a different standard from... right. If you're in Israel and you're born to Jews, you're a Jew, period. doesn't matter if you're gay. That has nothing to do with it. You are a Jew. I don't know where you're reading that, but I want you to send it to me because now I'm, like, freaking out. <laughs> like, I wasn't freaking out about Israel enough, like, before. But um, I, I, have, I don't know what you're referencing. If you're talking about Haredi Judaism and all of that, they're going to kick you out of the community, but you, don't, you, don't be un, you, don't, you can't become an un-Jew, that I, that I know of. So if that's happening, I really want to know what they're basing it in and what that means. Because I don't know about that. Okay. So, so I'm just, I'm, I'm admitting my ignorance. I, I really don't know. But it's horrifying. Okay. Now, it might be about the law of return. Mm-hmm. If you want to come back and you're gay, pff, well, we don't want you, so we're going to figure out how to get rid of you. So are you not, are, you're saying you're not Jewish? That person is not Jewish? I don't know. That, but that's all I can imagine it's about is the law of return. Okay. If you're born to Jewish parents, if you're born to a Jewish mother, you can be queer as a $3 bill, and you're still a Jew. So I just don't know where that would, you know what I mean? I'm not sure where, where that's coming from. But I would not love to see it, but I, <laughs> I, need, uh, I need to see it. All right. So if we are talking about, um, let, let's look at source four, and then, and then we'll go on. Um, so we want to close out with source four. Emma Green. Um, so very interesting that they brought uh, an interview with Rabbi Sharon Browse of a small city in the United States called Los Angeles. Second largest Jewish community in the United States is in Los Angeles. Uh, so let's see what Sharon Browse has to say. When we were building ECAR, I realized that I wasn't interested at all in the movement question, meaning denominations. What I wanted to do was bring together people who were interested in asking, what does it mean to be a Jew and a human being in a world on fire? I don't frankly care if you identify as Reform or Modern Orthodox. For me, I say what I need to say. I'm not looking for the, I'm not looking to build the biggest, widest tent so that any person with any political perspective should and could feel absolutely comfortable here. I think in those environments, we become so neutral and so numb that we can't actually say something. All right. This is the big, one of the big issues in liberal Judaism today. Do you belong in our synagogue? So it's not really a question of who's a Jew. But what's a Jew alone hanging out in the world going, I'm Jewish, right? Without some kind of community? I mean, I'm not, I'm not denigrating that person, but I'm saying, who does it matter to? What matters for a lot of Jews is where do I belong and do I belong based on ideology? 
Sharon Browse is saying she built Ecar on purpose, not to be a wide tent for all Jews who wanted to come there, but to be a tent to include all Jews who want to be about a certain political agenda. So what we're facing then in a community like that is, do I belong if I align with what, 85% of what the synagogue stands for? Okay, maybe it's like, yes, then I belong. Well, what if I'm in that synagogue for 13 years and then some things shift and change for me and now I only agree with 45% of the synagogue's platform? Do I belong? At what point do other members of the synagogue look at me and say, what is she doing here? Why is she here? She doesn't belong here. This is the major tension in a Judaism of becoming that we are facing in the liberal Jewish world right now, is where do Jews belong? Where do they feel like they belong? And then what what are the ways that we can easily lose that if we don't fit the bill anymore? If they think we don't fit the bill or I think I don't fit the bill, what does that mean? That I need to leave and go to another community? The criticism of a place like KI is they let anybody in. As Bob Saget said, Rabbi Rubin would marry a goat to a table. (laughs) So it was funny and a comedian's way of roasting Stephen, but it was really a statement about what they say about us. At KI, yeah, they hold wedding ceremonies, marrying a goat to a table, meaning anybody can go there. Anybody's considered a Jew. Anybody can be read in. And the tent is so wide, they can't say anything about anything. Because the tent's too wide. So what are, what are they going to be able to say of meaning and of value? Because you got people from all different stripes. How is that a positive value? So you've got the Sharon Browse Ecar community on one side and KI, I'll put KI on the other side. We are actively trying to build a big tent here. Some people within the Judaism of belonging world want to say that is not only silly, it's suicidal. Why would Jews want to belong to a place that don't stand for anything? A lot of Jews of being don't give a crap about being Jews of being. What they want is a Judaism that matters, a Judaism of meaning. So what, I'm born Jewish. I don't care. I can assimilate. My family has assimilated. Why should I bother doing doing Jewish? Okay, so they call me Jewish, like the kid who came to my office. You call me Jewish. What the heck does that mean to me? I don't need this, and you don't get to tell me I'm a Jew. So so in a Judaism that's mostly of becoming, that that a lot of people say, my Judaism doesn't mean anything unless it's tied to beliefs, ideology, positions, right? Certain things that that line up with my values and what I want to be about in this world. If it doesn't line up with that, not only do I not care about it, but what do I need it for? If that's the Judaism that is what most Jews are choosing in America 2023, what does it mean to be Ikar? It makes a lot of sense to be Ikar because then you draw people who are aligned with your vision. And how exciting is that? That is so exciting. The danger is who decides when I'm out? Who decides when I'm not towing the line of what it means, right, to be in line with that ideology? 
whatever the ideology is du jour. KI says, you don't have to have an ideology. You just need to align yourself with the Jewish people, decide you're a part of the Jewish project, and you are welcome here. Welcome home. The criticism of that, the challenge of that is, so what do you stand for, KI? Why should we bother? What are you? You're just essentially a less nice country club of people who happen to be born Jewish. Why do I need that? I've got Brentwood. Or I hate country clubs. Why would I belong to a club that doesn't stand for anything? You just get together because you're all born Jews or you married a Jew or you know some Hebrew. Like, really? What is that? How is that a community? That's the criticism, right, on that end. So here's Stephen Lewis. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put it out there. (laughs) I've decided I have an ideology about this. Stephen Lewis says I need to be more vocal about it. And when the incoming president says you need to be more vocal, right, Burt Kleinman, past president, you listen. I believe right now, Sharon Browse and Ikar stand for very important ethical issues. I think they stand for really important political policy issues that need to be pushed and pushed from a Jewish perspective. I believe a lot in what Ikar is doing. However, I believe we are living in times where polarization and the differences between how we understand policy and how we go about handling certain things in this country and in Israel the things that are flowing from that because of the way technology is working in our lives, we are in serious trouble. Sharon Browse assumes there's a healthy liberal democracy in place so she can have her e-car, and I support 100% what they're doing. I'm worried her assumption is really, really in trouble. I am not sure we're going to have a liberal democracy if we don't get it together. And getting it together means being a bigger tent. It means being a place where we can come together across ideology, across political positions, across the things that we care about that may have us clash outside of here really seriously, and to see ourselves as both a people of being and a people of belonging that we are Jews or people who are Jew-adjacent, or as a recent senator said, Jew-ish. And anyone who wants to read themselves into this project, anyone who marries into this craziness, anybody who says, I just want to check it out because I'm freaking out about how crazy things are out there and this feels kind of good, anybody who wants to be a part of that, I say, welcome home. Now let's figure out how we sit around the dinner table. And that maybe means there are things we can't discuss or we discuss at this end of the table and those folks discuss it at that end or you go into the smoking room and y'all be in there and we'll have brandy over there. I don't know. But I believe ethically and morally, truly, it's becoming more and more clear to me that this is our charge right now is to be a place where everyone can sit at the table. And if we don't start figuring out how to do that in a bigger tent, in a bigger context, I'm worried that what Ikar takes for granted is not going to exist in Israel as well as here. We see it in Israel and we call it out in Israel more because it seems more obvious that democracy is on the line there. But it's not. It's just more obvious. 
it is on the line here. And I'm not being hysterical. I've really checked this out. I'm not being alarmist. I really feel like I'm being a realist that says, if we don't figure out how to talk to each other, we are in deeper trouble than we know. Um, and so if it means there are things we can't do as a community, ideologically, politically, whatever, that is something I'm going to have to live with, and I think it's worth it to be able to say welcome home to a lot more different kinds of people. That means wedding a Judaism of being, a Judaism of becoming, a Judaism of affiliation in ways that are going to be messy and complicated. But I feel like it's an ethical imperative right now. My rabbinate for the rest of my career as I see it. I wish I could say this will blow over. It's going to be better. It's going to be fine in a few years. I don't see that happening. Technology, until we do something to turn around how we use it and the echo chambers we live in and the different set of facts each of us is listening to and getting fed and the commentaries on those facts that are completely different, until we do something to fix that, we are not going to fix the fact that people live in a different universe from each other. If they're never in the same room connected to something we think is bigger that calls us to hold this however hard it is, If we don't do that, I am very worried about the totalitarian government that will be voted in the way Hitler was voted in. He won in elections, free and fair elections. I just picked that one because we're Jews and because it's the one that resonates, you know, with, with my history of Holocaust education and You can fill in the blank with how many times totalitarian leaders have been elected. Regimes have been elected. Yeah, there's some coup d'etat. Yeah, I get it. Sometimes there's a military coup or whatever. But any liberal democracy that has ever failed has failed because the populace became so so disconnected from each other that they elected a totalitarian, an authoritarian regime. We are really playing with fire if we don't think that can happen here. We came, if you ask me, very close. And if you look at how much of our country still doesn't see January 6th as a problem, how many people do not see that as a problem? We are still precipitously close to a place none of us want to be as Jews. Because the only hope Jews have to thrive is in a liberal democracy. Let's be very clear. It's the only place we will thrive. So my, I will accept the criticism leveled at folks like us who are about building a big tent. I accept it. I totally get it. We can't do everything. And so, yes, there's things about being a, a place that's about Judaism of being and Judaism of becoming and Judaism of affiliation with the Jewish people that makes it very messy and very sloppy and ideologically not sometimes so very effective. But I think the message of you're welcome here, I don't care who you are, other places are talking a lot about what does it mean, Jews of color, trans Jews. Guess what? At KI, no one cares. The good news is no one cares here. If you're a Jew of color or you're a trans Jew, we have B'nai Mitzvah for teens who are gender non-binary. You have a lesbian senior rabbi. 
No one cares. You don't get that many places. I'll take the criticism. I'll take the hits that we don't stand for anything because we welcome everyone. I'll take those hits. It's true. I don't even deny it. But in this world right now, there are so many people who need shelter. There are so many people who are lonely just by living an American life. So cut off, so lonely, so depressed, so looking for a way to give their time and talent and energy and personhood to something bigger than what's on Netflix tonight. And I love Netflix. Believe me, I say it because I'm an addict. If we're about that, okay, bring it. Bring the challenge. Because I see what it does for our kids. I see what it does for people of color coming in. I see what it does for queer people coming in. I see what it does for intermarried couples coming in. What it does for people with no faith who go, I don't know why this speaks to me, but it does. I thought I didn't need this, but it turns out I do. If we can be a place that can hold all of that, I believe that is one of the only things that's going to challenge what's going on out there that is tearing us apart. So I'm with y'all in trying to figure out what that means, what that looks like, that your here is really important because we need to talk about it. We need to, we need to really reflect on it. We need to think about who we want to be so that we can articulate that and do it proudly or say, I'm not sure we're doing something a little crazy. Like that's okay too. I'm not really sure, but I don't know. It's we're thriving. We're growing. We were at 860-something. We're now at 870-something families. We are growing. In the last two years, we've had over 200 families, brand-new households, join KI. It tells me we're doing something that's speaking to people in a way that I think is not only just what they need, like, okay, give them a fix, right? I We're doing something here. We're building something here that is another model other and counter directly to a lot of what we are getting um, out there in the world that is dividing us and tearing us apart and leaving us anxious and and depressed and um, and without hope. So thank you so much for helping build this. Thanks for throwing your lot in with this crazy experiment that is KI and this Jewish community. And we are so grateful for all of you who serve in leadership, who, you know, just just by being here, like keep this place, uh, the amazing place that it is. Um, truly, thank you all. Um, I look forward to seeing you next time. We will send you the texts. Any, any of you who have registered for the class, we will send you the texts uh, for next class, and we will um, hopefully have another discussion uh, of meat and value.